Uh, welcome to Sin, Suffering, Satan, and Evil, Part 2. Uh, we did this uh, last month, Part 1, and, and I'm excited to get to the, uh, the second installment here. My hope is that we actually finish the installment. That's my goal, that we actually finish it, so we'll see, see what we can pull off here. But uh, I'm grateful for you all. Thanks for, thanks for being here. It's sweet to be a part of this church, sweet to be a part of what God is, is doing here, and and I love doing theology. So, uh, so here's what we're gonna what we're gonna do. I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna we're just gonna do this, and then I'm gonna try to leave uh, lots of time at the end. Uh, well, lots of time. What do I mean by that? Well, we will see how much time I can leave, but I'll leave time at the end for questions. And then uh, I don't have handouts for you. It, this this preparation was a monster that kind of overtook me. So in the future, I want you know, pretty extensive notes to hand out to you. But uh, have your Bibles ready. I'm going to have you actually turn to a few passages um, uh, soon. Yeah, Jeanette. Are those the ones from last month? N- no, but here, here's what I will do. Free of charge, uh, I will make sure that my notes in full are available online afterwards. They already are from last time. Last time. So this is 30 more pages in addition to that. Um, so I've got, I've got more. It's kind of overkill. So, yeah, so that's, it's kind of a bummer. So I'll do my best to give clear points, but you're right. It would have been ideal to have those. So no, we don't have any more. They'll be online. Yeah. It it won't help much for what we're doing tonight, but we'll, uh, but it would be something, I suppose. All right. So let me pray and then we will dive right in. Okay. Oh Lord, we come to you as the God who has all power and the God who rules the universe. Oh Lord, I think of, uh, I think of that, that famous quote, oh Lord, that there um, is not one square inch of the universe, O oh Christ, where you do not say this is mine and I rule it and I am sovereign over it. I think of Sproul's great comment, oh Lord, that there is not one rogue molecule in the universe. There's not one... Um, uh, a single tiny piece of quantum foam that operates independently apart from your sovereign decree. And, and uh, Lord, we need help. We're just people. And so, Lord, we, we very much uh, need your help tonight. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your word. I pray that you would help me to teach slash preach with clarity. I pray that you would help us to engage with the text, O oh Lord. Help us to have hearts that want to know what the text says, not what some philosophical thing says. What does the text say? Help us to submit to what the text says, Lord. That's the most important thing. So thank you for these sweet people. What a joy to have them in my life. Thank you for the precious sheep that they are. And Lord, pray that this would be a great blessing and would bring much glory to you, Christ. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, as I begin, um, uh, I just want you to know that I, I really believe in what we're about to do here. And what we're about to do is theology. And the, the thing about theology, I, I think I said something like this last time, the thing about theology is that it was never, ever designed to be some sort of abstract theolo- theoretical thing divorced from the, the, the issues of real life. Theology, if you're doing it right is never designed to be that way. Rather, the, the essence of theology is that it's really designed to do holistic life transformation. That, that theology is for living. Theology is for life. In, in fact, my definition of theology is that um, it is taking the most lofty 
exalted thoughts about God and connecting them to the everyday issues in the trenches of life. So we should never sacrifice the depth, um, but we should work extra hard to make sure that what we do say, the deep things we do say, how that should shape and influence and govern and transform even the most private uh, secret moments of our lives. That, that's theology. That's what we want to do here. And, and, and tonight our, our topic is, you know, again, this is part two. So if you're here last time, then you know, but this is, this is of earth shattering significance. This is really, really big. And, and really what this is going to feel like is that, that we are little tiny ants at the, you know, at the foot of Mount Everest, just gaping up at the towering majesty that lies before us. I mean, this is really big, really big. And so it's going to require a lot of, a lot of grace. So what we're going to cover is, is one of the most sensitive nerves of our exist, existence, namely the existence of sin and suffering and Satan and evil and, and in what way God is in control over it and why he al- allows it and why he doesn't prevent all of it and how that all works and how it, how it intersects with and harmonizes with his holiness and righteousness and goodness and justice and love and how that intersects with man's responsibility. So all the really gnarly questions that we have about sovereignty of God, we want to we wanna get to those. And, and I really believe um, that what we need to handle a terrifying 21st century is a stunning vision of a glorious God with an unstoppable sovereign purpose in the universe. That's what we really need. Um, In other words, uh, more than ever, we need to see that the world, with all of its blood and guts and sin and horrors, that all of that is under the massive hand of God. We have to come to grips with that. We have to come to grips with the fact that there are no accidents there are no mistakes. There's no such thing as luck. There's, there's no such thing as coincidences. There's no such thing as karma. There's only God, and he governs everything that comes to pass. So here's, here's where we're going tonight. Uh, my, my general aim, my, my purpose is to demonstrate, and this is, this is, this is big. My, my aim tonight is to demonstrate that the deepest, most ultimate explanation for sin and evil in the world is the sovereign love of God. Th- that if you had to come down, okay, what's the ultimate reason why, why this stuff exists? I believe the answer, when you look at what the Bible has to say, is that it is the sovereign love of God. That's the ultimate explanation for why sin and evil exists in the world. Not just the love of God, not just the sovereignty of God, but the sovereign love of God. And what I mean is that in some mystery that we will probably never fully grasp in this life, we need to come to grips with the fact that God has lovingly designed a plan of salvation that mysteriously includes sin and evil and sinners who need a savior. I'm not saying that's easy. I'm just saying that's what the Bible indicates. And I'm going to argue that the ultimate reason why that was God's plan was so that ultimately, in the end, Jesus Christ would be put on display for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. That, that's, that's the end game. That's where all of human history is headed, that God would craft this particular plan that included in some mystery sin and evil and suffering and Satan, that, that God would craft all of that ultimately so that in the end, we would bask in and behold Christ for the treasure that he is. So think of it like this. Uh, if, if history is like a dramatic play, 
the father wrote the entire script before life, before time began. He wrote the entire script before time began. And every great play needs a hero. And so God the Father chose his son to be the hero. God the Son is the center. He's the, the hero. He's on center stage. Everything is about him. And so the entire uh, plot of the play is designed to put the power and the glory and the beauty and the supremacy of Jesus Christ on open display for our everlasting and ever-increasing enjoyment forever. I mean, that's where human history is headed. Regardless of whether you are going to agree with what I'm about to say, we all have to agree that if we're going to take the Bible serious, that that's where all of human history is headed, that Christ would be displayed as the supreme treasure of the universe. And so what I'm arguing is, this, is that God wrote the script and he included certain elements in the play, like sin and evil and death, that the Father in some mystery in a way that does not minimize anyone's personal responsibility, in a way that does not make him guilty for anything, that, that in a way that upholds his perfect holiness, that God wrote certain things into the script that the son would overcome by his power and in so doing would put his worth and beauty and supremacy on display. That's what we call a mystery. How does that work? Well, that's tricky. That's tricky, but... We'll see if we can unravel some of that. Now, again, how that all fits with God's righteousness, we will see. How all that fits with man's responsibility, we will see. That's the tricky part. So that's, that's where we're going. And, and last time, if you remember, we, asked, we, we began by asking a very simple but poignant question. And the question is, is God in absolute sovereign control over sin and evil? Is he in absolute sovereign control over sin and evil? That's the question that we open with. And if you answer no to that, well then, to be frank, you don't believe in the God of the Bible and you don't believe in the only God who exists if you say that God is not sovereign. But if you answer yes to that question, well, guess what we have to do now? We have to define what sovereignty means, don't we? Okay, if, if, if it's true that God is sovereign over all things, including sin and evil, and he is, then we have to define what sovereignty means. And, and you remember last time I gave you a couple options, different ways that people try to make sense out of this issue. Option number one, people will say, okay, well, sovereignty means that God knew beforehand what was going to happen. God knew that was going to happen. And then uh, he, he, he sees it coming, he watches it unfold, and then he turns it for good. That's one option. And, and in other words, this is, this is mere premonition. This is mere cognitive awareness. God, uh, like a weather caster for, uh, you know, uh, a weather, wait, what is that called? Who, who are those people? Uh, weather forecaster, that's what it is. A, a forecaster in the sky. He sees the evil coming and it's like, well, here it comes, watches it unfold and then intervenes and turns it for good. Um, there's a couple problems with that, with that view. Now, it's true that God does absolutely know everything perfectly from all eternity. That's true. But you see, the Bible indicates that God does so much more than merely know beforehand what is going to happen. And here's the, here's the deepest problem with that view. That view says um, that 
uh, that, that view implies, see if you can follow this, the view implies that there is an unseen, invisible force outside of God that somehow determined all things and God, it's kind of outside of God and he just has to sort of like go with it. Does that make sense? So if God merely knows beforehand that things will happen and that's the extent of his sovereignty, then that implies that there was an unseen invisible force outside of God that predetermined all things and that God just sort of has to be like, well, I will make the best of it when it unfolds. The problem is that's just not in the Bible. That, that's, just not, uh, that's just not what the Bible says about who God is. God is more than just a spectator. You, you see, he wrote the script. He is the one who predetermined what would come to pass. And we'll see texts that will undeniably say that. So that's the first option. God's sovereignty means that he merely knows beforehand what would happen. Option number two, uh, another way to uh, identify sovereignty is to say that God passively allows or lets or permits sin and evil to happen, and which is similar to the first view. It overlaps but does that make sense? So God's sort of like just a, a passively allows things to happen and then intervenes, jumps in, turns it for good and saves the day in the end. Now, let's be clear. We do see God in the Bible intervening in the events of human history, right? He does do that. No question. It's not like God is, you know, distant and just sort of like watching this thing unfold. Well, I predetermined everything and just whatever. I'm not involved in history. No, God is involved intimately in the events of life. But the Bible also makes clear that God does so much more than merely passively allow things to happen. Um, and, and so what that does is that brings us to a, a proposed definition of the sovereignty of God. So if you had to pin me down, I don't know why you would, but if you had to, this would be my definition of the sovereignty of God. I believe the sovereignty of God is this. When you look at all of the Bible, I think, you, I think you're forced to come to this conclusion and define sovereignty in this way. I think it means the sovereignty of God is his infinite, inexhaustible power to accomplish everything he predestined before the foundation of the world. His infinite, inexhaustible power to accomplish everything that he predestined before the foundation of the world. So you, you hear in the definition, A, that, that God predestined everything before time began. In other words, he, he wrote the script of history. He had it all down. It was, it was finished. It was complete. Everything was accounted for. And then he... Act 1, scene 1, Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning God creates the heavens and the earth and then history begins and then everything that unfolds in history is what he himself had predetermined would happen. But the second part of that definition indicates that in real time, in real life, in actual situations, God himself actively accomplishes everything that he himself predetermined. So, so God is intimately involved as the divine superintendent governing and guiding all things. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Whether you agree with that or not, that's, that's what I'm, I believe the Bible teaches. And where we get this from is uh, texts like Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. I think this is probably the most important text on the sovereignty of God, the comprehensive sovereignty of God. I'll read it for you. 
Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Uh, God says, uh, remember the former things from long ago, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Okay, well, God, what is it about you in particular that makes you so different from everyone and everything? Next verse. I declare the end from the beginning. And, from, and, and things from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, I sh- uh, my purpose shall be established and I shall accomplish all my good pleasure. So this is really profound stuff. God says, okay, what sets me apart from everyone and everything is that I declare the end from the beginning. That, that's really profound. So what does he mean by the end? We, we talked about this a little bit last time. But when he says, I declare the end from the beginning, what does he mean by the end? To what is he referring? The end of time, right? Everything in, even up to eternity future. I declare the end from the beginning. I, I declare it. And when does he declare the end? When did he do that? From the beginning, right? So there's no question that he's saying, look, uh, when there was nothing I planned it all. I planned it all. But then notice what he says in the second half, and he says, from ancient times, things which have not been done. So it's parallel to what he just said. And this is what he said. He basically quotes himself in eternity past. In eternity past, he basically said, my purpose shall be established, and I shall accomplish all my good pleasure. So the implication is, Everything that he planned, he will do. Everything that happens in human history is what he planned in eternity past, and everything that unfolds is what he himself had predetermined would happen. This, this is amazing stuff. Uh, Ephesians 1.11, uh, as another text that you have to go to for, uh, I think this is one of the most important texts in the whole Bible for, for God's sovereignty that both has his, what he planned in eternity past and then his actual real-time um, governing and guiding of all things in the present. So this is mild-ish, you know, mildly review-ish, so uh, I'm going to go through some of this stuff pretty fast. But Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, Ephesians 1, 11, I believe that those confirm that the sovereignty of God is his infinite, inexhaustible power to accomplish everything that he predestined before the foundation of the world. Um, listen to what uh, Charles Spurgeon says. Everyone likes Spurgeon, don't they? Um, great beard, you know, uh, that's not the only quality he had, but here's, here's, what, here's what he said. He said, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit, as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. Do you see what he's doing? Taking the little things of this life and then the big things out there. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of the leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. So do you hear what he says? Small, little, tiny things, leaves falling from a tree. God ordained those. The tumbling of an avalanche, God ordained that. It's amazing. So now we get to the most important 
part of the night, which is we need to confirm from the Bible, is this true? Now, I think that Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, and Ephesians 1, 11, I think that does the trick, but I think it's going to help us. I know it's going to help us to look at the, look at the evidence up close in depth. And, and I had 10, I'll just give you nine, um, actually eight, because I'm going to skip one of the, the points here. But I want to give you uh, nine uh, realms over which God is sovereign. This is going to go fast, so you're going to have to really keep up here. But nine realms over which God is sovereign. And, and how I'm going to do this is I'm going to do it in, in funnel-like fashion. I'm going to start with the broadest possible categories, things over which God is sovereign. And then as we go, I'm going to narrow it down to really fine-tune, meticulous details of life. And then I'm going to end looking at verses that specifically state God's sovereignty over sin and evil and, and, and how it is that, what, what is his relationship to those things? That makes sense? We're going to start really big and then we're going to go down to, we're going to look at what the Bible actually has to say about his control over sin and evil. Let's do it. What's that? Let's do it. Let's do it. Hey, all right. It's my go-getter. All right, so realm, the first realm, the first realm over which God is sovereign. God is sovereign over the entirety of the universe. God is sovereign over the entirety of the universe. In other words, the Bible is really, really clear that this whole thing, which scientists think that is 93 billion light years across, the best they can tell, and, and how, many, how many miles is one light year? Does anyone know? 186,000 miles is one light year? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's really big. So now you've got 93 billion light years across, the best they can tell, and the Bible's clear that God is sovereign over all of it. So Psalm 115.3, this is a really crucial text. Psalm 115.3. It says, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Simple, straightforward, earth-shatteringly significant. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And when it says that he is in the heavens, that doesn't mean that he's like detached from the affairs of everyday life. Like, oh, God is just, you know, remember the song that I quoted last time? God is watching us from a distance. Blasphemous song. Um, What that indicates is that God is sovereign over the affairs of this life. He is supreme over all things. But notice that, that everything which God pleases, he does. Everything. He's invincible. He is unstoppable. There's, I believe that you know, the, the psalm writer makes this open-ended with no restrictions. I think the implication is whatever God does and what he didn't do is what he was pleased to do and to not do. Everything that happens in the world is, is what God was pleased to bring about in human history. There's, you know, God is, is never, God's hand is never forced to do what he doesn't want to do. He, he does all all things that please him. Daniel 4, verses 35 and 36. I love this text because it's out of the mouth of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, as you know, uh, God made Nebuchadnezzar insane as a, as a penalty for his pride and arrogance. And, and at the end of this period of insanity, this is what, this is what Nebuchadnezzar said. And listen to things that comes out of this pagan king's mouth. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the living one or I, uh, 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 I blessed the, the, the most high 
And I praised the one who lives forever. Why? Because he has an eternal dominion. And his kingdom is for generation throughout generation. Now, here it is. All of the inhabitants of the earth are like nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? See, I think that phrase, not I think, it is that phrase, he does according to his will according, among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. That means that he is the one who governs everything that comes to pass. Heaven and on earth, it all is happening according to what he himself decides and determines. Period. Period. I think we see the same thing in, in Romans, 11, 30, uh, Romans 11 verse 36. When it says that from him and through him and to him are all things, that's really huge. That, that just shows that uh, there is not one thing that takes place in the world that is outside of his sovereign superintending control. Okay, so that's the, then there's a couple other verses too. There's, uh, um, you know, uh, Job 42.2 and, and I think Isaiah 46.9 and 10, the ones we just looked at, I think those should all be in, included in that. So the Bible is clear that, that God over the whole universe, God is in control, which brings us to the second realm. Uh, God is sovereign over all creation. God is sovereign over all creation. In other words, I, without question, the, the Bible is really clear. The, all the intricate things that happen in the world, the things that we see as we drive to school and drive to work and, and you know, that we see in our backyard, the Bible is really clear that God is in control over everything in, in creation or nature. And so, for instance, here, here's a kind of a, a fast list of everything over which God is in control. Planets, stars, and space. There are explicit verses that talk about God's rule over those things. So I think of like Job, again, you don't have to write this down. The notes will come later. But Job 9, 7, Job 26, verse 7, Job 38, 31 through 33, Isaiah 40, 26, Jeremiah 31, 25. You look at those verses and you harmonize what they say. It's really clear. God commands the sun. God orders the moon. He fixes the days and the seasons. He numbers the stars. He calls them by name. Job makes clear that he is the one who directs the constellations in the sky. It even says that he suspends the planets in space. Now, to be sure, maybe the instrument he uses is gravity or lack thereof, but it says that he is the one who actively does that. that there's no such concept of like, well, there's Mother Nature just kind of doing her thing independently of God, and God's just kind of, no. It's that God is actively involved in every detail of creation. Next category, oceans and seas and rivers. You look at all these verses, you know, and again, we don't have to write this down. This is overkill, but Job 38, 8 through 11, Psalm 89, 9 through 12, Psalm 104, Psalm 135, Matthew 8. It's, it's really, really clear that, that all of the bodies of water and everything in them is ordained and controlled by God. The, the limits of the oceans, the direction of the rivers and streams, everything that swims in the oceans and seas and rivers and streams, the Bible is explicitly clear God is in control of all of it. For instance, Psalm 104, verses 10 through 13. It says, He, the subject is God, He sends forth springs in the valleys. 
They flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They lift up their voices among the branches. He waters the mountains from the upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. So, and then lots of other verses that I didn't read about God in control of the ocean. So oceans and rivers and streams and brooks and creeks and ponds and everything else. It is all under the sovereignty of God. Another category, trees and grass and vegetation. This is really interesting. You look at the Bible and, and you see that you look at Job and there's these verses like, that describe like flowers blooming in the desert that no one will ever see or smell except God. Like God God brought those. And, and grass and vegetation in the hidden valleys of the Amazon jungle. The Bible is clear. God is the one who causes those things to grow. I mean, sure, he has set things in place. He's got means for those things, but that doesn't mean he's distant from them. He is intimately involved. Again, Psalm 104, listen to what it says. I think it's very interesting. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle. He does that. Why does grass grow? Because God makes it grow. You can tell your kids that. Who, who caused the grass to grow? Uh, the process of photosynthesis and, you know, I mean, or whatever it is. It's like, no, God did that. And vegetation for the labor of man, so that he may bring forth food from the earth. And wine, which makes heart, man's heart glad, so that he may, may make his face glisten with oil. I love that text. I'm not a drinker, but I, I love that. I love that verse. And food which sustains man's heart. The trees of Yahweh drink their fill. The cedars of Lebanon, which he planted, where the birds build their nests and the stork whose home is the fir trees. So it's like Psalm 104 just goes out of its way to say every tree that you see, can you say it's planted by God? Planted by God. The grass that grows out in the field, caused to grow by God. That's what the text explicitly says. Another category, weather, like rain and snow and clouds and lightning and wind. So like Psalm 147, um, Jeremiah 10, um, you know, you, you look at what the Bible says about uh, weather and weather patterns. It's really clear. Every raindrop that falls, falls according to the exact coordinates which God gave them. Every raindrop. The, the, the Psalms are clear that God not only ordains the snow, but he's the one who determines the intricate design of every snowflake. The jagged path of every lightning bolt was carved by God. He determined the path that that would go. The gentle breeze that blows the fragile leaves in the parking lot and the, and the hurricane winds that devastate entire cities. Both come from his storehouses. He brings them to pass. Listen to Jeremiah 10 verses 12 and 13. He it is who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding he has stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he causes, notice the, the language, he causes the clouds to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and he brings out wind from his storehouses. He, he, he did that. And then animals, birds, wild beasts, another category. I mean, literally from Genesis to Revelation, we, we see God's sovereign control over animals. We see in some places God, um, well, let me ask you, what, what, 
Uh, what are the famous passages in the Bible that include animals? Balaam's donkey. Balaam's donkey. Okay, good. Jonah. Jonah. Very good. The ark. The ark. Yeah. What else? Yeah, I think, I think he does. I think he does. Even, even fire-breathing ones. Remember that text? It's pretty wild. Okay, what else? Other, other passages? What's that? Triumphal entry. Triumphal entry. Oh, yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, with the, with the donkey there. Boy, that's rich. That's really good stuff. Fish in the Sea of Galilee. The fish in the Sea of Galilee, right? Remember that whole thing? Well, oh, I don't have the money to pay the tax. Oh, why don't you go fishing? I know, and there's, a, there's, there's, mo- there's money in that thing's mouth, you know? Good, what else? Oh, Leviathan. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, I think it's Psalm 147, right? And then we've got the, the lion's den. Remember that? Daniel 6, right? Um, and then you've got other passages. You've got, um, uh, let's see, Second uh, Kings 2. I, this was really embarrassing last time, but I talked about the two female bears that came out and killed all those kids. Um, but we see them there. We see Second Kings 17, when God sent lions to kill people. So sometimes he closes the lion's mouth, Daniel 6. Sometimes he sends the lions to kill people, 2 Kings 17. Uh, Jonah 1.17, the, there's the fish, and then 4.7. Remember, remember what we see in chapter 4, verse 7? It's not, not an animal, what's that? The worm, right? And it said, Yahweh, you know, Vayaman, you know, Yahweh Ta'alo'ot, you know, Yahweh appointed a worm. God appointed it. That's what the language says. And it killed the, the, uh, the vine. So it's, it's really interesting. And, and every single one of those texts, um, without exception that you mentioned, had God's sovereignty over it, right? Because what did Christ say before he sent them to go fetch it? Like he, he knew that he had determined and said, hey, look, I just want you to know there's going to be a donkey at this exact place. Go get it. Uh, okay. Right? The, the fish in the sea, sovereignty over animals. Uh, the f- giant fish. It said God appointed the great fish. He did. What's that? Totally. So I don't know if you can find one passage, and even if you did, it wouldn't discount the dozens of other ones, but almost every passage about animals shows his supremacy and sovereignty over them. Okay, third realm. All right, and these are, these are still going to go pretty fast here. Uh, the third realm over which God is sovereign, God is sovereign over nations. Got a sovereign over nations. Um, and, and again, I, I, think, I think God's word is, is really clear um, that, uh, I mean, it's not I think, I mean, it is. Uh, not only did God supernaturally cause nations to come into existence, and where did that happen? Tower of Babel, right? He, he, you know, so nations came into existence as a result of, of sin, as a consequence of sin. That's really interesting. But he also determines where those nations would live, Acts 17.26. He indicates how long they survive. Acts 17.26. How powerful they are. Job 12.23. If their plans succeed. Psalm 33 verses 10 and 11. And, and, and if a nation, the, the text makes clear in Job, that if a nation crumbles to the ground and turns into a bunch of roaming nomads who live in tents, the Bible is unmistakable. God is the one who brought that to pass. So listen to, Job, listen to Job 12, 23 through 25. This is Job 12, 23 through 25. He makes the nations great, then destroys them. 
He enlarges the nations, then leads them away. Listen, this verse astonishes me. He deprives of intelligence the chiefs of the earth's people and makes them wander in a pathless waste. God does that. In other words, when when governments collectively become stupid and idiotic and and really do terrible things to, to ruin their country, who ultimately is the one controlling all of that? In some mystery, God is. They grope in the darkness with no light and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. Psalm 33, 10 and 11. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. So whose will comes to pass? It's his. He brings the silly plans of the rulers and the nations to nothing. Fourth realm. God is sovereign over kings and authorities and governments. God is sovereign, very clear from the Bible, God is sovereign over every king and ruler and tyrant and authority that has ever existed in human history. In fact, they got in not because they inherited by nepotism or because they were voted in. They did, but ultimately it's because God determined that they would. It's, it's incredible stuff. So you think about if you did a, a, a and, and then uh, what are the famous rulers and kings of, of the Bible? What, what are some of the ones you know of? David, Solomon. David, Solomon. Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. Saul. Saul. Cyrus. Cyrus. Yeah, that's my fave. That's my fave. Not because he was like a great guy or anything, but because, let me just tell you this, this is really amazing. He appears in Isaiah chapter 45. Cyrus does. You know what I'm talking about? And what's really astonishing about this, thanks for the, the uh, segue here, um, what's really astonishing about this text is that um, I, uh, Cyrus wasn't even born for another 120 years. And yet it mentions him by name in chapter 45 saying that he would release the people of Israel back into their land. It, it's incredible. I mean, could you imagine, you know, Cyrus, you know, he rises up to power and he has this great kingdom and he conquers the Babylonians and he rules over the Jewish people and someone comes up to him and says, "Uh, King Cyrus, I was reading in the book of Isaiah the other day. He unravels the scroll and you're in it. And this was written 120 years before you were born. That's astonishing. That's incredible stuff. Okay, so uh, rabbit trail, sorry. So Cyrus, who else? Pilate, Herod, Xerxes. Xerxes, excellent. And then Asahuerus, the other guy. Yeah, that guy was a that guy was a dirtball. We'll talk about him. Yeah, so so you see, every single one of those kings is ordained by God. So you've got uh, God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Got that? He sent an evil spirit to torment Saul. It says. Ruach ra'ah me Yahweh, an evil spirit from Yahweh, was sent to torment Saul. Whoa. He drove Nebuchadnezzar to madness, and then he restored Nebuchadnezzar's sanity, right? And then, and then uh, every single public policy or decree ever made in history ultimately came about by the sovereign hand of God. And if you don't believe me, Proverbs 21.1. Proverbs 21.1 says, The heart of the king 
is like channels of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he pleases. That wherever he pleases, that's the exact same language as Psalm 115, verse 3. Daniel 2.21, check this out. He, that is God, changes times and seasons. He, uh, oh, what's that term? He uh, removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have intelligence. So, God is the one who removes kings, establishes kings. It's incredible stuff. Also, mark on your notes, Romans 13, verse 1. Okay, we're still going here. We're going we're gonna to plow ahead. Uh, I'm going to narrow the funnel just a little bit. Fifth realm over which God is sovereign. Um, God is sovereign, get this now, over individuals and over individual actions. God is sovereign over individuals and individual actions actions. Um, and and, and this, is, this is hard to understand, right? Because we see in the Bible that God ordains the public plans of politicians and also the private thoughts of every individual on the planet in history. Um, who we'd be, where we'd live, what we'd do, what we would look like. All of that was ordained by God. For instance, Genesis 20, verse 6. Remember that whole episode where Abraham uh, takes Sarah and he tells Abimelech, he says, look, uh, you know, she's my sister because he was, you know, a total coward and he thought, you know, she was beautiful. And I think she was like in her 90s. So how that worked is, is interesting. But anyway, so she was this, she's this, you know, pretty chick. And he says, well, she's my sister. And so Abimelech feels that he can, he can marry her, right? Well, he's visited in a dream by God. And do you remember what God said to him? You are a dead man. Yeah, and, and then Abimelech goes, uh, okay, for the record, I didn't touch her. And you know what God said? God essentially said, I know you didn't. And you know why? Because I didn't let you. This is what the text says. That's what Genesis 20, verse 6. I didn't let you touch her. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, Jeroboam, remember Jeroboam? Solomon fractured the kingdom. His son Jeroboam came into power. And the people of Israel come to him as some, some kind of leaders, elders, and they say, hey, look, you know, your dad was a good guy and all, but ugh, golly, you got to lighten the load on us, man. You, 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 he, your father ruled with an iron fist. Can you lighten the load a little bit? Well, let me think about it. So, so what did he do? He got his younger friends. He goes, all right, what do you think? What do you think you guys should do with these guys? And they're like... Are you kidding me? No, you're gonna sh- that's going to make you look weak. You need to make it harder on them. So he did. And what happened? Divided, Divided the kingdom. Went from a fractured kingdom to a shattered kingdom, right? Here's what it said. But the king did not listen to the people. For this came about as a turning of events from Yahweh in order to establish his word, which Yahweh spoke by the, man of, by, by the hand of Ahia, uh, the, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So the stupidity of Jeroboam, said, according to the text, this came about as a turning of events from Yahweh. The stupid, immature, you know, a macho decision of this little arrogant king came about from God. Uh, Psalm 139, verse 16. I think this is huge. Listen very carefully. 
Your eyes, this is David praying, and and again, note that this is in the context of suffering. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book there was ordained for me all of my days when as yet there was one of them. Isn't that interesting? So, metaphorically speaking, God wrote a book of his days. Every single chapter was written beforehand and before any of them happened, and that's what gave David security in the midst of his suffering, is that God had ordained every chapter of his life, including the ones filled with pain. Uh, speaking, and, and, and listen to what Proverbs says. Uh, the plans of the heart belong to a man, but the answer of the tongue is from Yahweh. Or here's this one. This one's even clearer. Um, the heart of a man plans his way, right? You make plans, agreed? The heart of man plans his way, but Yahweh directs his steps. That's very interesting. And then listen to Proverbs 20, verse 24. It says, the plans, uh, no, um, the steps of a man are from the Lord. But a man, how can he understand his way? Do you see what he's doing there? This is really interesting. So Solomon, I believe, is wrestling with that tension of, you know, and and here's the other thing. Let me back up and say, we all know that Proverbs is a book trying to teach us what? Wisdom, right? And wisdom is like nitty-gritty application of truth for everyday life situations. And I think it's really interesting that in a book about nitty-gritty wisdom and making plans and getting counsel and doing what you're supposed to do to succeed in life, I think it's really interesting that dozens of times in Proverbs, Solomon talks about the sovereignty of God. And here, I think he's wrestling with the the reality of like, look, uh, okay, the steps of a man are from the Lord. As in, God is the one who determines where we live and who we'd be and what we do and what our lives would become. All of that is determined by God. And then he says, how can a man understand his way? Do you see what he's doing? The most brilliant man in history is expressing the, the wonder of trying to reconcile sovereignty with human responsibility. I think it's very interesting. Okay, so that's individual uh, situations in life. We're, we're, we're getting near the end here. We're in realm six. We've got nine realms total. And these are still going to go pretty fast. Realm number six of which God is sovereign. God is sovereign over the minutia of life. God is sovereign over the minutia, the little things of life. Um, I don't know, how many of you have read uh, A.W. Tozer's book, um, Knowledge of the Holy? You ever read that book? It's actually, there's actually so much good stuff in that book. I remember that was the first Christian book. I got saved at 19 or 20, whatever it was. And I had never read a Christian book ever in my life, let alone the Bible. And, um, and I remember this book was given to me and it, it changed my life. It just had this powerful, profound view of who God is. Years later, I, I read it again and I read his chapter on sovereignty and I didn't like it. I didn't like it. Uh, I liked everything else about the book, but this one thing, and, and he's got this analogy of like, well, you know, God's sovereignty is like a cruise ship. God determines the destination of the ship, but people on board are free, and God doesn't really have much to do with what they do. They can drink what they want and do what they want and play what they want and say what they want, and God's not really in the details. God's just over the destination. Well, that, that's, that sounds good and all, but there, there are two problems with that. 
Uh, there, there, are two, there, there are two problems with the, say, that, with the view that says, okay, God ordained the, the big picture events of history, but the little things, eh, eh. Just, that's, that's, the, that's the free will of human beings. There are two problems with that view. Number one is that the biggest events of human history, get this now, are always preceded by and comprised of smaller insignificant details, right? That, that's the, every event in history. It's not like, I mean, it, you, you can't, that's, that's an inaccurate way to view history. It's like, well, there's big events and there's the little things. They're all interwoven. The, the other problem with that view is that just doesn't square with what the Bible actually says. So for instance, chariot wheels, chariot wheels, Exodus 14, remember? Remember that? The, uh, God not only blows back the water, and as the Egyptians pass through the middle of the dry Red Sea, it says he caused their chariot wheels to wobble and that they drove with difficulty. He, that, the little wheels, he himself was in control of those. Arrows. I love this. God is sovereign over every arrow and every bullet fired in every war in human history. He determines the path that they go. Here's my proof. 1 Kings chapter 22. Uh, there's this really interesting thing where you've got uh, wicked King Jehoshaphat from the south and you've got wickeder King Ahab from the north. And, you know, the only time that you could get north and south to team up together is if you had someone that you hated more that you wanted to defeat. And north of the northern kingdom, there's this group of people called the Arameans. And they were always, uh, which is modern day Syria, and they have always been a real thorn in the sign of Israel, even to this very day. I think it's interesting. And for whatever reason, they had the prophet Micaiah locked up in prison. I don't know if you remember this, First Kings 22. They had Micaiah locked up in prison. And for whatever reason, Ahab, who's terrible, and Jehoshaphat, who's almost as terrible, they're like, well, let's get Micaiah out here and ask him if we should invade, uh, invade the Arameans. Well, why they would care what a true prophet of Yahweh has to say, I don't know. They had all these false prophets who told them what they wanted to hear. But one of them goes, all right, well, let's get Micaiah out here. We'll see what he says. What did Micaiah say? When they said, do we go march against the Arameans? What did he say? No, well, uh, he, he sarcastically, he, actually, that's true. Sarcastically said, sure, fine, go ahead. And they slapped, they punched him in the face. It's like, you're just saying what we want to hear. Tell us what you really feel. Okay, fine. If you go into battle, Ahab, you're dead. You're going to die today. And um, okay, so here, here's, here's what Ahab did. Uh, Ahab disguises himself. Do you remember this? He, and he, so he wouldn't be disguised as the king. I, I gotta, I've got to draw this out because this is really profound. Verses 30 through 33, Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, listen to what he says, I will disguise myself and go into the battle, but you put on your robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went to the battle. That's Ahab. Now the king of Aram, the bad guys, had commanded the 32 captains of his chariot saying, do not fight with the small or great, but with the king of Israel alone. In other words, don't kill, don't worry about anybody else, only go after Ahab. Well, that sounds great, but Ahab's disguised. He looks like a regular soldier. They're never going to find him. Uh, so when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, surely it is the king of Israel. Then they turn aside to fight against him. So they go after Jehoshaphat. And then it says, I love this, Jehoshaphat cried out like a little girl. He's just like scared, screamed, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not Ahab. I don't know what he said. And when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. The plan worked. 
Ahab got away. He's under disguise. No one knows where he is. No one knows who he is. He looked, he's got his mask on, his helmet on, whatever. So uh, Ahab's totally safe. Micaiah made a wrong prophecy. He'll be discounted as a false prophet. It's easy. Until you get to verse 34. And, and I love this. There, there are certain words in the Bible that are really funny to me, like random. So listen to this. It says, now a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint of the armor. So, they, so he said to the driver of his chariot, this is Ahab speaking, turn around and take me out of the fight for I am severely wounded. He got back and he's dead. So here, here's what happened. So, so Ahab thinks he's safe. He's totally disguised. No one, no one knows who he is and he's, he's doing whatever and there's some dude up on you know, some high part in a castle and he's bored out of his gourd because he's not involved in the battle at all. It's like, oh, whatever. So you know, like little kids that just, they just like fire their gun. That's what he did. He just, at random, and it didn't even say his name, an anonymous soldier fires the arrow, he's bored, and the path of the arrow goes in the exact part in Ahab's armor, the most vulnerable spot, and kills him. That was a sovereign arrow. God, God determined the path of that arrow. I mean, th- that is incredible to me. Then you get the book of Esther. And, and what's the book of Esther about? If you had to summarize the book of Esther, what, what's it about? What, what happens in the book of Esther? Saving, Saving absolutely, Yeah. So, so God rescues his people from, from near annihilation, right? In fact, that was the order. That was the order to kill every single Jew who, who lived in all of the districts. I mean, they sent this proclamation far and wide. So you know what's going on, right? The, the Persians are in power, and, um, and God saves his, saves his people. Um, and, and what happens, like, biblically, what, theologically, what's at stake if all the Jews get wiped out? What's at stake if that happens? God's reputation, would you say? Would you say that again? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if there's no Jewish people, there's no Messiah, right? And, and God's a liar. His promises uh, that God's people would be as numerous as the stars of the sky, that, that totally falls to the ground. Um, if there's no Jewish people, there's no Messiah. There's no atoning sacrifice. There's no future kingdom. But in the end, God delivers his people. How? How does he do that? Well, um, he does it through very small and seemingly insignificant means. Chapter 1. I won't walk through all 10 chapters. Don't worry. Chapter 1, King Ahasuerus threw a party, got drunk, offended his wife. She mouthed off, got deported. Remember that? That's chapter 1. Ahasuerus uh, does a Craigslist ad for another wife. Right, makes a proclamation, and it says they bring every beautiful young virgin in the entire district whom he would choose to be his wife. Who gets chosen? Esther does. And what I love about Esther is that does it? Uh, uh, what does es- the book of Esther not mention at all that is very peculiar? God. It doesn't mention God at all. I think what's really interesting. I think that's intentional. Not I think it is. I think that the book is portraying the sovereignty of God, how we experience it. Hidden, silent, unseen. It it, it writes, it plays out how we actually view life. And yet there's no question that God is the one orchestrating all events. Okay, so uh, Esther gets chosen. Uh, this young Jewish girl from the captives of Jerusalem. And then uh, chapter two, in unrelated news, 
Um, uh, Mordecai has some sort of position out at the gate, right? Did I get him right? Mordecai? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he just happens to overhear what? A plot to do what? To kill the king. He reports it. The king gets saved. Uh, and, and what do they do with his heroic deed? They, they, they write it down. Yeah, that, that's true too. But first they write it down in a book, right? So they write it down. Okay, you know, Mordecai did this. That's really great. They take it downstairs, put it in the annals of the library of the king, and that's it. Okay, and then you're reading it. It's like, why? What is this? That has no relevance to anything. Meanwhile, Haman goes on this psychotic tirade. He's so too, super offended by uh, Mordecai. He wants to wipe all the Jewish people out of existence. Later on, chapter 6 the king has insomnia one night. So this is, you know, maybe weeks, months later, I don't know. The king has got insomnia. Things are really starting to come to a, a crucial head here. And so what does he do as a way to get himself to sleep? Yeah, he has someone read the chronicles of the king. Stuff about his kingdom. So apparently it wasn't much of a page turner. So if you want to fall asleep, you, you read those. So they go downstairs and they get the dusty book and they start reading. And what does he hear about when it's being read to him? Mordecai, right? So it's like, what? Hold on. Did we, have we honored this dude? Holy smoke. Oh, let's, let's get on this. And so he appoints him and honors him. And, and then it unfolds that he listens to Esther. And, and then he allows the Jews to take up arms. And they're able to defend themselves. And they kill their enemies. And, and it says the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. My point is this. A drunken party, an offended wife, an overheard conversation, a sleepless night, and a boring book sitting on the shelf were all the intricate means that God used to deliver his people. So there was the big event, but it was comprised of all these little tiny things that just don't really seem that significant on the surface. A uh, couple more things. Again, we're talking about minutiae. I think the last thing I'll mention is um, a dice. I mean, there's, there's nothing more seemingly random than dice, right? And, and lots in the Old Testament, you know, when they would cast lots, that's the Old Testament equivalent to, to dice. Proverbs 16.33 says this, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So based on that text, who determines every roll of dice in Las Vegas? God does. It's not random. He determines the roll of the dice. He does that. That's him. Unbelievable. All right, seventh realm. I know this is wearying and exhausting, but I, I hope this is helpful to get this uh, a fire hydrant view of the sovereignty of God. Seventh realm over which God is sovereign. We're making great time. God is sovereign over sickness and suffering. God is sovereign over sickness and suffering. And to be sure, it sounds strange and, and uncomfortable to say that God wills and ordains sickness and suffering. That sounds strange. We don't, we don't want to say that. But that's, that's exactly what the Bible says. It's exactly what the Bible says. And, you know, the, the funny thing about this is that, um, you know, th this doesn't lessen, uh, you know, um, the emotional impact of it, and it's not intended to. We, we still grieve and, and weep and, and feel the, the fear, and, and yet the scriptures want us to know that, all, that God is sovereign over all health and pain and suffering. For instance, Exodus chapter 4. What's the context of Exodus chapter 4? What's, what's happening in those early chapters of Exodus? 
I'll, put, I'll be more specific. What, what, what is God telling Moses to do? What's the mission he has for him? Yeah, go back to Egypt, set the people free, right? How does Moses feel about the, about the mission? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, James, like, uh, yeah, he's not super excited about this. Why? Because, well, golly, you know, the Egyptians are the world power and the Pharaoh is the most you know, powerful man in history. Even just going to waltz in there and say, oh, by the way, the people who hold your entire economy together, yeah, they're coming with me. So we're done here. I mean, it's just like that's, that's a suicide mission. And so Moses keeps trying to get out of it. And then what's Moses' excuse, uh, or at least one of his excuses, uh, eventually? What, is it, what does he say to I can't talk. I, you look, look, you need a good front man for this. I'm, I'm not a good speaker. Uh, I'm really not the guy for this. And, and it said that the anger of Yahweh burned against him. Here's what, here's what, here's what uh, God said. Who made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Isn't that interesting? You have vision tonight because that's what God wanted for you. And if you didn't, it's because that was what God wanted for you also. Mute, deaf, seeing, or blind, God is the one. All over all sickness, over all disability, God is the one who determines all of that for every human being. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. Listen carefully. I put to death... And I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. So life and death and sickness and health are God's gifts to give. He determines. He determines if we are sick and if we are well. He determines if we die or if we stay alive or if we come back to life. That that is all under his control. That's a general statement. He's saying that that's, all of that is determined by him. First Samuel verses 5 and 6. It says twice that God is the one who sagar, he, he closed the womb of Hannah. She had incurable fertility issues and it was God that closed the womb. Job chapter 1. We can't leave without talking about Job, right? Job 1 and 2. Um, and, then, and then tell me in chapter 1, what were the things that happened to Job? What, what things unfolded in his life? And that, they destroyed his animals. They destroyed his animals. His, his children. His children, his family. Yeah, terrible, terrible sores. Yeah, that, that happened in chapter 2, but yeah, that happened to him. That was terrible. All of his wealth, right? So, so raiders came, the, the Sabians, they came and they stole like his animals, which would have been not like his food supply, but his cash flow, right? He was a, he was a millionaire and they stole all that. So it's like, well, they stole his bank account. They killed his, they killed his employees. You know, I think Microsoft has like 50,000 employees. If 30,000 of their, if Microsoft employees died in one day, what would happen to Microsoft? It, it, it crumbles. And that, that's what happened to him. He lost his employees. I mean, everything just crumbled to the ground. And here's what he said. Naked I came forth from the womb of my mother, and naked I shall return there. Listen very carefully. Yahweh has given, and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. 
And then the narrator goes on to say, in all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he give blame to God. Now, I think this is very interesting. We miss the subtlety of what he said here, but to whom did Job attribute the ultimate cause of his afflictions? God. That's who he understood. That's exactly who he understood. And, you know, because again, when he says Yahweh gives, Yahweh takes away, I mean, I don't think he would discount that Satan could be an instrument in that because Satan certainly was, right? But what Job went all the way to the source and said, God is the one ultimately who gives. God is the one ultimately who takes away. Now, was Satan involved? Of course he was. That's undeniable. But it wasn't his power that was decisive. It was God's. It was not his plan that was decisive. It was God. And, and again, I think that that statement in verse 22, the very next verse, when it says, in all of this, Job did not sin and he did not give blame to God. I think it's very interesting that notice that Job could credit God as the ultimate source of his afflictions and it still didn't count as blaming God. It wasn't wrong for him to attribute ultimate causality to God. That was okay. That was fine. That was right for him to do so. And then we get to chapter two. And then that's when we get the, the painful sores and the boils, right? And he, he had these nasty things and, you know, I mean, and, you know, uh, scraped it with pottery. I mean, this dude was in total agony. And, and then there comes the, the whole scene with his wife, right? Remember the whole scene with his wife? And, and she comes to him and she said, do you still hold fast to your integrity? And what did she tell him to do? What, what was her advice to him? Curse God and die. Now, what I don't like is when, is when preachers will use this as like a joke. Like, to, well, guys, you know, you don't want Job's wife. Make sure you don't marry her. It's like, it kind of almost makes me angry because she lost everything too. She lost everything too. And, and I, I think it's wrong. I think it's, it's, it's mean-spirited of us to make her a punchline to a joke. She lost all of her kids. She lost all of her wealth. She lost the family business, too. She lost everything. She was equally heartbroken and crushed as he was. But, but notice this. When she told Job to curse God, who was it that she was ultimately crediting as the source of their afflictions? God. That's, that's what's bound up in the statement. And, and here's what's interesting. Some people will say, um, some people, well, and, and then I think Job's response to her is, is really intriguing. Remember what he says? He says, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept hara, evil? Because that's the word he uses. And it says, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. So here, here's what's interesting. When he tells her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Do you know what I think he's saying? I think, I think he's saying, look, dear, only foolish women speak this way, and you don't normally speak this way. You, you don't normally say things that are so silly. That's not right. Um, and so he's not insulting her, it's just the opposite. He recognizes that this was a rare exception for her that she said something foolish when normally she, she's, she's a very wise woman. And then he follows up with that and he says, shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept evil? 
You see, I think what he's correcting in her um, is that, here's where she went wrong. She went wrong, not that the pain comes ultimately from God. She was right. She was right. God was the source. Where she went wrong, listen very carefully, where she went wrong is in assuming that God had no right to bring pain and affliction where someone didn't do something directly to deserve it. That's where she went wrong. She went wrong in in thinking, well, look, my husband didn't do immediately anything deserving of this to happen to him. God brings those things to be sure, but he didn't do anything directly to cause it. And she's like, that's that's not okay. And Job says, you know what? I'm just going to stop you right there. I'm going to stop you right there. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept hara, evil? And, you know, some people will say, well, that word for evil, that that has... um, Non, a non-moral sense. That term means calamity. It means hardship. It means you know various ways to translate. It doesn't have to translate evil. It's not a moral thing. That's just not true, because that word ra is used in the book of Job dozens and dozens of times, and every single time it refers to morality. And so in the context of Job and in the whole Bible, and even if it was calamity, like really hard, terrible afflictions that happen to you, even if they're not directly caused by a human being. Well, that still doesn't alleviate anything, right? Because that still says that God is the one who brings pain and suffering into our lives. And again, in the event that someone thinks that Job went too far and saying that evil comes from God, <laughs> that last verse says, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. It was, it was just fine for Job to say what he said. I think it's very interesting. Second Samuel twelve fifteen, heartbreaking text, Job, uh, Job, um, David, what, what happened in second Samuel 11? Do you remember? It was, it was quite a, um, it was quite a, a heartbreaking, uh, controversy. Remember what happened? David did what? Adultery. Adultery. Yeah. And then, and then, so got, got the girl pregnant, right? And then it's like, oh, I got to get my way out of this. So then he has the husband killed. Well, she gets pregnant and, and here's what chapter tw- uh, 12, verse 15 says. Yahweh struck the child who the wife of Uriah bore to David, and he became sick. That's what the text says. Yahweh struck the child. Three verses later, the child dies. And we, we hear that when you're like, that's, that's just not okay. What, 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 why would God do this? What, why would God ever bring deliberate harm to a baby whose only fault in the matter was being the result of David's lust? And yet the text says, Yahweh struck the child. And the answer to that is, is not easy to hear or to say. But the issue is, the conclusion I think that we're forced to come is that there must have been something more important at stake even than that baby's life. There was something more important at stake even than that baby's life. And I think what that was, was that it had to have been the glory of God through David's repentance. I don't make the rules, I just report the facts. So God being displayed as the supreme treasure of David's life is the issue that had priority even over the life of this infant. And yet, thankfully, even if it wasn't there, we would still live with it and be able to harmonize it and still trust God's goodness in all of this. But I think it's interesting that verse 23, remember when the, when the child dies 
And, and David gets up from, you know, shaves and combs his hair and finally eats and puts on clothes. And they're like, well, okay, the child died. Now you're, now you're okay. And, and do you remember what his response was? What was his response when he said, well, why, are you, why are you fine now that the child is dead? When before you were in mourning, what did he say? Why should I fast? The child is dead. That's right. I will go to him, um, but he will not come to me. So cryptic though the statement is, I think, his, I think the implication is, is, that, is that David had the assurance that the baby was alive and that David would see him again. John 9, there's the man blind from birth, right? Remember, remember what happened? Uh, the, the disciples thought that sin had caused it, and yet Christ makes clear, no, this happened so that the works of God should be manifest in him. So God designed that this man would be born blind so that the glory of God would be displayed in his life. And again, that doesn't always mean that the sick get well or the disease gets healed, because sometimes the glory of God is displayed even through the patient endurance of the one who suffers. Okay, eighth realm, Satan and demons. God is sovereign over Satan and demons. And with your permission, I'm going to skip this. Not because there's not material, but because there's too much material. And believe it or not, I have 120 pages of notes on the sovereignty of God over Satan and demons. And so if you're okay with it, I'll just do that at another time and I'll overwhelm you then. Okay, how does that sound? So, because I want to get to these verses on, on evil. Okay, uh, why don't we do this? Uh, any questions so far? I have unloaded on you. It was very cruel of me to, to unload on you so, so heavily. Um, what do you have for me so far? As far as questions, things you want to ask. Again, I'm still going to get to the verses on God's sovereignty over evil, over evil actions, so the best slash worst is yet to come. But any, anything for me so far? I want to hear from you. Yeah. Well, I heard a pastor say one time to someone, don't be angry. At God, be angry at Satan because it's his fault that evil came into the world. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't jive really mm. with what you're saying. Yeah, well, here's the thing. Here's sort of a paradigm to, for us. To, did you hear her question? Um, it's, and it's a great question. Here's sort of a paradigm that, that I think is helpful for us to think through. Um, Satan's involvement in, in the, the evil things that happen. If you look at what the scriptures say, um, I think we have to come to this conclusion. If something terrible happens, I think we need to say, well, according f- to what the Bible says, maybe Satan was involved. I don't know. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But God was definitely involved. So, and I'm sure in in... I don't know, I mean, I don't know how to quantify it. Most, many, lots of things that happen, Satan is involved. But the scriptures don't give us any indication that every single terrible, awful thing that happens, everything from a flat tire to an assassination of a, gov- of a, of a president, the scriptures don't really give us an indication. Well, Satan, that was Satan. That was the work of Satan. It just doesn't give us that. But the scriptures do say that God is the one involved, ultimately. Now, that does not mean that he does evil or that he approves of evil or that he's okay with evil or that he participates in evil. None of that. Everything you believe about the righteousness and holiness of God is still true, as well as everything you believe about the responsibility of human beings. That's all still true. 
It's just that in the grand scheme of things, we have to see that, that God is the one ultimately orchestrating all things. So I think, I think that's not great advice. I don't think that's super helpful. Um, you know, uh, I think that there is, you know, an appropriate um, anger directed at who, I'm not entirely sure. I think there is an appropriate anger and grief and sadness that we can and should feel when we see the effects of the fall. And I think that should translate into great longing for the Messiah to come and make things right. And, and, and a great re- reassurance and, and clinging to God that, that he will make all things be the way they ought to be. So probably not great advice, you know, but, but I get where I mean, people are just reaching for something. Yeah. Yeah, please. Talk about God's sovereignty over the original fall of Satan. Yeah. Oh, talk about that? Yes. Oh. I, I know you didn't want to do that, but I mean, that's, mm. that's the ultimate thing you've got to get back to because yeah. we have him living in perfection and when he sinned, talk about the sovereignty of God on that. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I think there's no one text, Tommy, that's like a slam dunk. Like, well, here's what happened and here's all the, the scientific, theological intricacies of, of what went into that. <laughs> But I think that there are enough texts across the, the, uh, the vista of Revelation to be able to say that in some mystery that we'll probably never be able to get to the bottom of in this life, that God even ordained, again, in some mystery that doesn't alleviate any responsibility of the evil one because he's going to be punished. Revelation 20 verse 10 says so. Lake of fire, it's coming. Can't avoid that that God ordained even the fall of Satan. You know, how does that work? How does that square with everything we know to be true? Well, I don't know. I mean, it, it's a mystery. We have to, but we have to at least be willing to state what the mystery is. You know, why would God do that? Well, you know, ultimately, I'm going to argue, is that in the grand scheme of things, it, was so, it would be so that the supremacy of his son would be displayed because Christ will be the one who single-handedly overcomes sin, Satan's suffering, evil, and death, and he would be put on display. So I think in the end, you just have to say, in some mystery, God is the one who ordained that that would come to pass. Not in such a way that makes anything he does less evil, and not in any way that would minimize his responsibility or accountability. So it's not easy, and that's mysterious, but I think that's the conclusion at which you have to come. What do you think? Does that make sense? Yeah, again, that's, that's hard. That's, that's, but that's, that's the question you have to ask, right? Yeah, good. Other questions? Yeah. So then, would you say that Yeah, it's interesting. There are even verses in Ecclesiastes about that, that very kind of thing. Um, and, and that, e- you know, even that. Now, again, um, so the answer is yes, absolutely. Some people are glass half full, some are glass Totally. But, but just as a person's overall happiness. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, does that mitigate or, or erase any responsibility we have to do things right? No, absolutely not. That's all still true, too. Um, you know, in the end, though, you know, like, why do I have a propensity toward anger? Well, I mean, I, I am a fallen human being, and, but whatever it is about the way that 
you know, I am, and, and that's one thing that, that God has, has given to me to, to trust him for his sufficiency for. I mean, you even think about it like this, like, you know, why, why a tree in the garden? I mean, this isn't exactly what you're asking, but I just think about, like, why, why that one tree? You didn't have to put any tree there. Well, I think the issue is, is that God wanted them to know, even though they were a perfect and sinless, God wanted them to know that they still needed to depend on him for his sufficiency, uh, even in an unfallen state. And I think the same thing with our afflictions and the things we struggle with. And now it's like, ultimately, we have to trust that the Lord made us who we are to trust him for his sufficiency. Yeah, that's a good question. Did you have something, Kathy? Yeah, go for it. That God created us good. Hmm. And I thought, well, okay, so he created us good so that we would sin, so that we would need him. That, that's pretty simple. Hmm. It, it does make sense. It does make sense. It, yeah, I think, I think we'd have to be we'd have to be careful about how we word that, you know. But but if if as long as you qualify what you just said with, okay, uh, man was still and you mean this. I know you well enough that you mean this. Man is still responsible and he shouldn't have done it and and still deserves wrath and and God still they had full responsibility and accountability. And as long as you say okay, in the end, in some mystery, God ordained. Even the fall of man. Oh, how does that work? I don't know. I think, I think you know, yeah, I think you could say something to that effect. Yeah. I think, I, think, I think we can all be fine that we haven't gone too far as long as we don't affirm one over the other, at the expense of the other. We can aff- affirm God's sovereignty, but as soon as you make that sound like that man is less responsible, you don't have it right. And, as long, and, and, and if we affirm humans' responsibility too much, where we think, well, God is constrained and God can only kind of intervene after we do things. We have sovereign equilibrium and God has to wait for us to act. That's just not true. It's just not true. So I gave you more than you bargained for and I probably cluttered up the, made it a mess though. But, but I think it's a, good, it's a good question. Is it okay if I just love God and love others and not worry about all this? No. No, you, you, you have to worry about all this. Um, well, okay, uh, you should rejoice greatly in the specific things over which the Bible says God is sovereign. I, I think you should embrace this. Uh, because, because, and the reason why I say that, Vicki, is because, um, you know, we just, we live in a fallen world, right? And we rub shoulders with hurting people, and, and we have to give them answers. And the Bible provides those answers. And that balance you were talking about, that takes a lot of mental energy, and I'm not smart. No, well, no, now hold on. You, you are a theologian. You are a theologian. Yeah, see, there you go. So you lose. Um, but no, but you know what, but you know what, Vicki? I mean, you have access to the scriptures and, and, and God wants you to, um, no, I, I, think, I think we need to know these things so that we can be the best biblical counselors that we can possibly be. And um, so, yes, love God and love people, but the best way to love God is to affirm him for whom he has revealed himself to be. And the best way to love people is to, is to show them who God is from the scriptures. And that includes all of the things we're covering tonight. So yes, that, but more than that. So sorry, you don't get out of it. Uh, last question and then we'll, we'll finish. Go ahead. 
Yeah. Yeah. So he's ordaining it, planning it, but not actively doing it. Is that where we're at? Oh, uh, uh, say that again. Say that again. Sorry, I, I dozed off there. He's ordained it, planned it, but he's not actively doing it, not actively Yes, yes. I think, I think that's really good. I think that's a good way to put it, James. Um, God is not maliciously, um, bloodthirstily, and diabolically trying to get us to sin. That, that's not who God is. That, that, that's not the game he plays. Um, so I think, you know, now, did he, like you said, did he ordain that the temptation would exist? For sure. Why? Well, probably lots of reasons, not the least of which is that we would trust him for his sufficiency and all, all of that. However, when we get to the uh, Satan and demons thing, we have, to, we have to reckon with Second Chronicles 21, where it said, God is incited David uh, to take a census, which was a sin, and David was punished for it. The people were punished for it. So we have, to, we have to reckon with that, and we'll get to that eventually. I think it's really interesting that the uh, text in Second Samuel says that Satan incited David, but yet the one in Chronicles said that God's incited David. He used the exact same Hebrew word. Well, which is it? Was it Satan or was it God? Well... Yeah, so, so we'll, we'll, uh, yes, both, in what sense? We will see when we do that seminar. But, but yes, you are absolutely right, James, 100% right. God does not bloodthirstily, maliciously, diabolically try to get you to stumble because, you know, that's just, not, that's just not who God is. That is true, too, absolutely. Like, Absolutely. Absolutely. That is 100% true. 100% true. So it's not like, like you said, it's not like God in every, there are going to be those ordained times where you're facing something that God is like bringing to you. Mm-hmm. But probably a large portion of the temptations or evil we encounter are just part of the sinful atmosphere that God is holding back. Totally. Yeah. And, and here's the beautiful thing about what we're talking about tonight is that everything you just said is 100% true. It's 100% true. And, and the other thing that's 100% true is that, is that even those moments of temptation are governed and guided by the Lord himself. That's what's it's like, well, so God is tempting me? No, because James read the text. That, that's not what God does. How does this work? Well, that's the, that's the mystery of it all. We tiptoe on the, on the cliff of mystery. But what you, and that's where we have to go. We have, we have to affirm those kinds of things in their entirety um, and because and, uh, that's, that's 100% true. Yeah. Precisely. I, I would, yeah, absolutely. 100%. So even though it's not, like you're saying, he's not necessarily laying that temptation individually every single time, because his sovereignty is always working and always, you know, I guess, propelling itself, even though he's not directly tempting us, his sovereignty is ruling. Very well said. Absolutely. Very well said. And, and I think we have to come to grips with other texts 
Um, you know, we don't have time to get into it here, but you know, where, you know, like God sent the evil spirit to Saul. Whoa, hold on. What? Um, God sent a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets. Uh, okay. What, how, what's going on here? Uh, other things where, where he, yeah, where he incited David. (sighs) What is happening? Um, you know, but we have to affirm what you just said in its entirety. We have to, that's where we have to go. So that's well said. Well said. She said something well said. Mm-hmm. So could you repeat it so I can write it down? No, but she can. Well, I don't hear her very well. So, <laughs> so, so uh, go ahead. Say it again. And I'll repeat it if you can. Okay. <laughs> On the spot here. It better be good. In the moment. <laughs> no, I was just saying, I think when it comes to the, the, the idea of God's sovereignty, when it comes to temptation or evil that we encounter, in our day-to-day lives is that God's, I just, the way I, I feel like that was being said is God's sovereignty is like the well-oiled machine. It's always propelling. It's always at work. And so even yes. though governing all of these things in our lives, yes. it's not like it's this vindictive pinpointing presence. Very good. It's just like overall, God knows the end result of time coming, mm-hmm. eternity future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so all of these things that are working in our individual lives, there's going to be those moments where I think, like from what you were saying, Jerry, from, and what the scripture says, is that there are going to be those appointed times where we're facing demon oppression, angels, God putting something in that moment, that moment of opportunity. But most of what we're going to encounter is just the result of a sinful atmosphere and God's sovereignty over that sinful atmosphere. Yeah, because yeah, both things are at work. And we see this in Second Corinthians 12, you know, where Paul says, you know, that uh, a messenger of Satan was given to me to torment me. Well, there's a few people at work there. A messenger of Satan, there's one, was given to me. By who? By God. God is the one who ultimately brought the, the, the messenger of Satan to torment him. The, the messenger of Satan did the tormenting. God's purpose was to do what in Paul's life? to keep him from exalting himself. So I think 2 Corinthians 12 is a perfect case in point of, you know, when it comes to that kind of thing, it's like, it's, it's exactly what you, you know, described. I mean, that's part of a fallen world and here's Satan doing his thing and yet over and above that is God with his own sovereign purpose, which leads me perfectly to the next section, um, which is uh, God is sovereign over sin and evil, over all sin and evil. And, and time is running out in a real hurry, but this, this, is, this is good. Um, I, uh, I can only do so much here, but, um, here are verses that describe God's sovereignty over sin and evil. We'll just maybe pick two or three and and we'll, we'll have to call it quits there. Genesis 50, I I think is one of the most helpful texts in the entire Bible to help us understand God's role in sin and, and evil. Uh, Genesis 50 is a long is a culmination of a long series of events that happened over years and years and years, right? Namely, with Joseph. Okay, and and what happened to Joseph? His brothers did what? Sold him into slavery. Right? They hated his guts. They uh, let's kill this guy. No, let's. Uh, oh, hey, look, slave traders. Let's sell him into slavery. Good call. Let's do that. Faked his death. They sold him into slavery. They take him down to Egypt, and. Um, you know, Joseph's uh, time in Egypt was, was 
anything but smooth, right? He, he gets falsely accused, gets thrown in prison. He accurately uh, predicts, uh, you know, describes a dream, and the, the, the baker says, you know what, man, thanks so much for this. I'll, I'll make sure to get you out. Forgets about him. He rotted in prison for how long after that? Two years. Rotted in prison for two years. I doubt prisons were super snazzy in, in Egypt, ancient Egypt. I'm sure this wasn't great. Um, so all this stuff happens, and then at the end of this whole thing, he, uh, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. Here's what he said. You meant evil against me. God meant it for good. To bring about the present result and to preserve many people alive. So notice his wording. You meant evil against me. God meant it for good. So this is is really profound stuff. So he says, you meant evil against me, meaning you did this, you were wrong, you were guilty, you sinned, you should not have done this. this, this was not okay, right? But then he says, God meant it for good. So that word meant, you meant, God meant, same exact word in the Hebrew, okay? And when it says God meant it, what's the it? What's the the fancy word? Antecedent. What's the thing it's referring back to? You meant evil against me, ra'ah. God meant it for good. What's the it? The brother's action. The evil. The evil. In the text, yes, that, but specifically the word is the evil, because the it is feminine, referring back to the word ra'ah, which is also feminine. You meant evil against me. God meant it for good. That word uh, uh, meant in Hebrew is chashav. It means to plan. It means to intend. It means to invent. They invented evil to get rid of their brother. God invented it to do the exact opposite thing. It's It's incredible. See, what makes this verse so special is because in one, in, uh, let's see, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, in seven Hebrew words, uh, Joseph articulates perfectly that, that tension between man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. And he says that in the exact same action, you meant this and you legitimately, deliberately did this. But behind the scenes, God was the one governing the entire thing. God invented the entire thing. To do what? To bring about many people alive. You think about the ripple effects of this event, right? So to preserve many people alive. Who who were the people he was talking about? The nation of Israel, which were about how many people at that point? About 70 people, right? What what did you say? No, well, but you know what? Yeah, right, exactly, exactly. Big, big clan. Um, and you, th- you think about the, to preserve many people alive. Well, what's going on here? Because 400 years later, they were going to multiply into this vast nation. God was going to break them out of the, the prison of Egypt. And, and the, God's fame was going to spread throughout all the earth. And a, and a harlot in Jericho was going to get saved. And then on history comes. And out of the people of Israel come the Messiah to uh, die for some from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. The ripple effects of this are, are, are massive. Um, and then the, the Joseph, said the, Joseph said the exact same thing to his brothers five chapters earlier. Listen to what he said, chapter 45, verse 5. Do not be angry with yourselves, brothers. It's <laughs> incredible. Do not be angry with yourselves because you sold me into slavery. Don't, don't, don't beat yourself up. Behold, 
Yahweh sent me before you to preserve life. That's what the text says. God sent me before you. That's just not true, Joseph. God did not send you to Egypt before to preserve people alive. Your brothers did that when they sold you into slavery. The slave traders brought you here. You, you got it wrong. No, Joseph is looking at it theologically. Theologically, he knows that behind their evil intentions, God was pulling the strings and orchestrating the entire event. And lest we think that Joseph made a slip of the tongue, listen to what Psalm 105 says about this same exact event. Psalm 105, verses 16 and 17. Speak, God is the subject of the verb. And he, God, called for a famine upon the land. He broke, God, broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Who brought the famine? God did. Who sent Joseph to Egypt? God. That's what the text says. Were his brothers guilty? You meant evil against me. They sure were. But God was behind the scenes. Job 42.11, you can mark that down. The hardening of Pharaoh, we don't have time for it. Um, but uh, uh, if only we did, that would be awesome. Uh, Psalm 105, check this out. This, this is really going to bake your noodle here. Um, Psalm 105 is, is describing the, uh, uh, it's recounting in poetic form the, the episode with Israel, like centuries of, of Israel's life. And, and it's describing their time in Egypt. And listen to what it says. Uh, so so the, the, the Psalm 105 really wants to emphasize God's control over the history of Israel. Listen to the, the subject of the verbs. Israel also came into Egypt. Thus Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And he caused the people to be very fruitful and made them stronger than their adversaries. He turned their heart to hate his people, to deal craftily, craftily with his servants. He sent Moses and Aaron that he had chosen. They performed his wondrous acts. He sent darkness and made it dark. He turned the waters into blood. He gave them hail for rain. He struck down their vines. He spoke and locusts came. He struck down the firstborn in the land. He brought them out with silver and gold. He spread a cloud for a covering. He brought quail. He opened the rock. He brought forth the people with joy and his chosen ones with a joyful shout. Notice verse 25. He turned their heart to hate his people. Pick your favorite word. Uh, made, caused, produced hatred in the people of Israel. I, I, I don't know. P pick your favorite word. He hafach turned their heart to hate his people without alleviating any personal responsibility on behalf of the Egyptians. How does that work? It said that. I don't know. It just says he turned their heart to hate his people and yet they were still guilty. They were still guilty. Um, all right, last texts and, and this will stagger you and then we'll close. Acts chapter 2 um, Listen very carefully to, to what it says here. Uh, speaking about the, the death of Christ, is this Peter's sermon at Pentecost? Great sermon. Israelite men, this is Acts 2, verses 22 and 23. Israelite men, hear these words Jesus the Nazarene, 
A man having been attested from God to you with powers and with wonders and with signs which God did through him in your midst, even as you know, this one you killed. Uh, Hold on. Uh, Let me see. I'm doing my translation on the fly here. This one you killed. This one was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God you put to death through the hand of sinful men. Kind of botched my translation there, so sorry about that. So he's talking about Christ. This one was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God you put to death through the hand of lawless men. He does the Genesis 50 thing. He says Christ was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God is the one who delivered him. At the same time, you put him to death through the hands of lawless men. He upholds both. He upholds both. God was the one who ordained the death of his son. Here's another one. This one's even clearer. Acts chapter 4, 27 and 28. Acts 4, 27, 28. They're praying And they say, for truly there were gathered in this city against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And here are the people that were gathered against him. Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and with the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. That's incredible. They did whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So was Herod guilty for his crimes? His mockery, corruption of justice, mocking of the king? Yes. Was Pontius Pilate guilty for what he did? What's that? Wash his hand. He's good, right? Yeah. No, to- coward, right? A corruption of justice. He, he, he did the wrong thing. What about the Gentiles, i.e. the Roman soldiers? Were they guilty? Were they complicit? Absolutely. What about the people of Israel? Red-handed. They did whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. The most evil crime in history, the most wicked, unspeakable thing in history happened according to the predestined plan of God. So I think in the end, you know, when you, when you look at the big picture, especially texts like John 17, I think we have to come to grips with the fact that the father crafted a plan with his son at the center and he wove certain things into his plan, namely even sin and evil, in such a way so that the son would overcome sin and evil by his power, not only by dying for sinners, but also by reversing the effects of sin on the planet when he comes in his kingdom and in so doing would put his supremacy on display for everyone to see. Let's put it this way. If you want to show off the brute power of a bodybuilder, what would you have him do? If there was this really super strong bodybuilder and you wanted to really see how strong he was, what would you give him to do if he were standing here? Lift weights. That's exactly right. You'd have him lift weights. All right, well, let's find the heaviest thing. Uh, all right, you know, so we, and so we want to show off his brute power. We have him lift a bunch of weights. If we want to show the supremacy of the sun, you orchestrate a plan that even in some mystery includes sin and evil, and you watch him overcome it by his power. 
And for all eternity, we will be enjoying his supremacy forever and ever. That's it. That's it. How, how, I mean, I don't think we solved any problems here, but we articulated some problems. Uh, I, I want to be fair to the time, and so I will be standing literally right here if you want to come ask me questions. Um, uh, but uh, I, I would open it more, but I, I fear that you know, that would be uh, unfair to you to make you stay. So if you have to go, go ahead and go. But if you want to ask questions, I'll be right here. Be glad to take them. Okay, thank you so much for being here. It's, it's a real pleasure to be part of this church. All right, thanks. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next month.